Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A. We are, at least here in the States, getting ready for a little bit of downtime. Some thanks of giving, giving of thanks. Thanks to y'all for the great questions you sent in on a short week here. Also, big thanks to our cats, Rocky and Rosie, who are sleeping next to me. Rocky, in particular, is snoring his behind off, and there you go. It's one of the freebies with cats. Uh, They sleep all the time and make a lot of noise, and Rocky is really good at that, and I'm currently trying to scratch his belly, and he's now biting my arm. So, thanks, buddy. Uh, Let's also say a big thank you to Jerry Suddeth, who puts together our questions each week and to the cooper tires company supporters of junior open wheel racing here in america for more than a decade just a huge thank you to them and a send off the usf championships what we once upon a time called the mazda road to indy their time here in junior open wheel is done nonetheless they have supported us on the show for six years seven i don't know how long for a super long time and just been the most giving and kind folks. So a huge thank you to Cooper Tires, Chris Pantani, the entire team, Cooper organization, the Justice Brothers, makers of automotive chemicals and lubricants. Big part of the Pruitt family since I was a kid. My father used nothing but Justice Brothers products at his shop. So dating back to the 1970s, I know. I'm I'm a little older than maybe some of y'all. Justice Brothers have been a big part of my life. TorontoMotorsports.com. Please visit them. If you love things like racing hats and t-shirts and stickers and models and books, they do a mighty fine job of making those available with their racing memorabilia-inspired store. And then finally, the Discount Tire Company, a big part this season, inaugural season in the USF Championships. So big thanks to all of them. Uh, we are lucky this week where we don't have a crazy amount of questions. And so we're going to get rocking and rolling right through them right now. And should also say that uh, if you're looking to do something really, really good for the holidays here, please visit prukids.org. P-R-U-E-K-I-D-S.org. Prukids.org. Some of the members of the Prude listener group led by Cassie Johnston, been doing a cool thing for a couple years, raising funds to buy toys, send toys to kids here during the holidays through some really good charitable organizations, looking after some kids who would not otherwise be so fortunate. So if you don't have a place to support yet, want to share a few dollars to make this happen, please pay a visit to prukids.org. So, of the questions Jerry put together, many of which are fantastic, uh, there's one that came in late and didn't quite make the cut. I'm actually going to open it. Open the good old podcast with the question from Airplanes and EMS. So, uh, flying and emergency services, I believe. So, there we go. The question here, who bears the cost of development of a new chassis? Is that Delara? Is it Penske Entertainment? Is it IndyCar? Uh, Is there a paid fund put together by teams? Obviously, teams would have to buy the chassis once developed and rolled out, but what gets us to even that point? So 
if this were a new organization doing this, would say some of what you mentioned here as possibilities might be involved. Couple ways of doing this, maybe the series and teams and whatnot, all making sure that there were plenty of dollars committed up front to know that whomever was developing the car would be able to do it, do it properly not have to go and seek crazy bank loans or other funding that would be tenuous. But since it's Delara, and Delara has been IndyCar's official chassis supplier for a couple decades now, we know it's Delara. They are a giant organization. Uh, we are confident in saying that they have amassed the profits to do such a thing, uh, that being conceive, build, in mass manufacture a new indy car whenever that time happens to be we don't know when that's going to be by the way but that's okay one of the joys um the lars done this more than once many well many times in indy car but moreover they do this on a regular basis across the many many series in which they are the sole chassis supplier or primary chassis supplier so the answer in this case is it would be Delara. Delara would handle the upfront costs just like a regular automotive manufacturer or the the maker of anything that would have a high number of sales. So like any product going to market, they would bear the costs of developing it, creating it, and presenting it for sale. Thing to close here on, and again, it's maybe a bit of a uh, obvious department of redundancy department type statement, but been 60 to 70 Delara DW12s sold. Could be even more. Maybe I, I've lost track of that, but we know for sure they will sell a similar amount of DW28s or 30s or whatever year this new car happens to come to life. So that's a thing they can rest upon full knowledge that, I don't know, look at a Chip Ganassi racing five car team right now means they are going to buy 10 to 15 cars, right? Primaries, spares, probably some dedicated specifically for the Indy 500, similar with an Andretti, which I know they're only going to meant to run three cars next year, but they would buy 10, I'm guessing, run down the list. You're going to see where every team is going to put in more or less double the amount of full-time entries that they run as their initial order. They would not all be delivered at once, but this is a case where Delara can invest the money, do all the personnel needed for it, all the wind tunnel time, CFD, all the rigorous testing, come up with a concept that is great and know that they have plenty of sales as the official chassis supplier and then also sell the spares for the car. So teams will buy spares packages for those new cars because things will get broken and then they will sell plenty of spares throughout its lifespan as it gets broken and broken and broken. Um, they're going to be good. So that's our opening question here. Once again, thanks for sending that in, and I feel like that might have been uh, the first submission from good old at airplanes and EMS 
for the week in IndyCar listener Q and a show. So that's, uh, that's greatly appreciated there. And why don't we fire next into a little question? It's not so little, but a good one from our pal, Chris D'Amato say Marshall, have a happy Thanksgiving some well-deserved downtime. Thank you. I'm hoping to, well, I know I can achieve the Thanksgiving, the downtime. I am pursuing that heavily. So you mentioned two weeks ago in the show that Connor Daly was most likely making a career pivot while still trying to run the Indy 500. So he made mention of this in his podcast. It says running in the NASCAR truck series is his focus. So Connor's been a bit of a lightning rod with IndyCar fans, but his career just seems marred with bad luck. Always been seen as Mr. Super Sub. Only had two full season team opportunities, just not with the greatest of opportunities. Any thoughts on why? Say so he's a fan favorite. Just seems like he's always had something working against him. I don't disagree, Chris. It's interesting. Uh, folks really get something they latch on to. That being one here where Connor maybe just isn't that good. Or. Graham Ray Hall, he isn't that good. And wow, it is just interesting to see how fiercely folks hold that and refuse to move off of it. Hey, opinions are what they are. Get it. Not saying that they are wrong. I'm right. Whatever. Just tell you that having seen those two knuckleheads perform uh, since their junior open wheel days and throughout their entire careers, I can tell you I've seen evidence that's different connor there's a lot of things going on here in my old estimation first one he's so familiar and has been so familiar to everyone in the paddock since he was a kid i think that has conspired against him why is that you could say that about graham you could say that about colton herta for example true but slightly different way connor being as friendly and engaging and as fun as he is just someone who known more received more by more people colton as a kid known by folks in and around the team's dad drove for but he wasn't necessarily someone that a team five spots down the paddock would know who he was connor seemingly just kind of everybody's kid right son of Derek daly beloved indycar figure known etc beth bowles similar thing stepson of who's become president of the indianapolis motor speedway doug bowles uh been around for a long time you go, well, that should be a great thing, right? Familiarity. Yeah, I think in Connor's case, it's more situation of no mystery here. Uh, we know you. It feels like you're everybody's son. And that's kind of the argument you get between kids and parents, right? At some point in time, kid's going to say, hey, stop treating me like a kid, Treat me as an individual, as an adult, as my own sovereign person. I think there might be something there. I know it's a little nuancy and not like results oriented of qualifying positions or whatever, Chris, but I think that's the first thing where you go, I could see how that would 
be problematic. Teams not looking at Connor as a special, unique, standout, standalone talent. Second item, very, very good in junior open wheel racing. Champion in what we would call Indie Pro 2000 in 2015, right? Then moved into Indie Lights. Would also say that there was something that maybe didn't help as well, that being getting interest over in Europe, right? So ran a little bit of Indy Lights in 2011 with uh, formerly known as Sam Schmidt Motorsports. Uh, did well. Uh, well. I think I recall him placing second at St. Pete on debut. Uh, won at Long Beach. This was Joseph Newgarden's championship year. Also had GP3 going on which was great for him he was back in the day someone we were hoping and wondering if he would get a chance to go represent good old us of a in uh formula one um did well i think finished like third or so in gp3 uh got a chance to do a little bit of gp2 um if not a full season of gp2 but there was a little bit of, hey, you were doing kind of well here, but then left to go over there. And this was at a time, Chris. I know we're only talking like 2013, 2014, but this was at a time where an American going over and doing things on the Formula One open wheel ladder were not tracked or considered to be as huge of a deal as it would be today. So knowing those things, I uh, think there was a little bit of a, hey, where'd you go? Uh, you were doing so well here. But for the folks who are really doing everything they can to be here, well, your rival, Joseph Newgarden, just won this 2011 Indy Lights Championship and is heading to IndyCar. Um, I'd say take those things. Then the fact that when Connor was able to make it into the Indy 500, 2013 with AJ Foyt, uh, was known to have brought some sponsors. That was the, the buildup around that. And so I think those three things, maybe to no fault of his own, for things that should not be counted against him, and, and in the highly critical world of motor racing, uh, fair is not necessarily something folks are worried about. Um I think you look at three things there where you go, feels a little common to everybody, not someone to be viewed as a holy cow, uh, standalone crazy talent to be pursued. Uh, the fact that there was a decent amount of European open wheel efforts then and not being seen a ton uh, or as much as you would hope while other indie Lights drivers were really standing out. And then the... When you got to Indy, it was through finding some funding to get you there. I think that just ticked a lot of boxes where too many IndyCar team owners didn't view him in the light that they should have. Then the final thing here is, like if you look at his former Ed Carpenter Racing teammate, Renus VK, similar thing, right? Came out of Indy Lights in 2019, wasn't the champ. Viewed super, super well, but... 
wasn't seen as the number one guy, kind of similar to what we had with Connor coming out of junior open wheel, getting into IndyCar. Big difference here, though, is when Renus landed with ECR and whether they were or weren't ready to make the most of his talent, he's just finished his, what, fourth full season. 60, 70 IndyCar races of learning, nonstop, developing himself. It's not what Connor had. And this is an area, Chris, where I really do think it plays a wickedly detrimental uh, role in a driver's development. And that is, look at Connor coming into the 500 in 2013. I don't believe, yeah, I think he was GP2 all of 2014 or so. Um, don't see him in IndyCar at all in 2014. And I know he's getting education over in Europe, but just not over here in the cars um, we want him to race. Does a couple of substitution-type deals in 2015. <clears throat> but look at what he did between 13 and 15. It was like five or six races, maybe, sporadic. Foyt and Coyne and, and Schmidt-Peterson when Hinch got hurt, I think. Finally, in 2016, he's got a full-season opportunity with Coyne. I thought he did phenomenally well uh, and thought that that should have continued to Coyne's benefit, but it didn't. Picked up by Foyt for the following season. Things did not go well. It was a bad year for the team. And that's where the struggle continued. So the not having multiple year upon year upon year of building to develop yourself every young driver every young athlete needs to really create that super strong foundation didn't have that 2016 to me is a real standout year having watched all of it and that's where i feel the opportunity was missed uh, by coin by others know that sebastian bourdais jimmy vassar sully sullivan came in at coin and 17 and start a new relationship there which led things so i get where they were going but it felt like connor did big enough things in 2016 to have been rewarded with a bigger better opportunities or, or possibly to stay he took the foyt one hoping it would become more than it was it wasn't and that basically killed his momentum and so he did have those two full seasons and then fell back into the struggling to find whatever he could. Indie-only type deals, having to find money, substitute type roles. And this is where a guy with a ton of talent, and make no mistake, Connor has the same kind of talent that IndyCar race winners have. But you look at the super bumpy road and you go, well... If you don't know when you're going to get to be on the court and play, if you're frequently riding the bench and having to conjure up opportunities with second or third tier teams, um, you're not going to develop yourself to the highest state to go and get an opportunity with a Penske, with a Ganassi. I know that he drove for Andretti, uh, at Indy and did super well for them. But just saying, it's one of those kind of escalating situations that is not in the driver's favor. 
So by the time he got to Carpenter, doing that kind of split thing with Carlin and Carpenter, been identified as a great oval talent, was doing great oval things, not necessarily regarded as a great road racer, which is, again, silly because that's 100% his background. But by the time he went full-ish time with Carpenter, Renus was obviously doing some pretty impressive things. Wasn't a case of Renus always being faster than Connor, though. But Renus had that image, feeling of being special. Connor, the look and feel of someone who was just permanently attached to the struggle bus. And so reputation-wise, that is just tough and so with all those things said getting to go full-time with carpenter not necessarily in what i would call the best seat there um a lot of things that i mentioned certainly made his life harder and there's been the reputation as well as someone who likes to party too much and doesn't put in the crazy amount of hours and so on and so forth. Um, as the other drivers, I can just tell you that I hate for where things ended up for him. I don't see a pathway back to IndyCar. There was hope one or two teams I'd heard from one more than the other that thought there could be something there to look into. Not aware of that going anywhere. Um, he's going to probably have a lifelong reputation of someone who just wasn't good enough to uh, get the job done in IndyCar and so on and so forth. I hate that for him because he's a great kid, super talented. But if I replace his career arc with Arenas or a Colton Herta or a Pato Award and say, let's try two, three years solid right out of the gate with a quality midfield team. Um, I think we're seeing someone who's in a much different place right now. It's just not the reality he was able to establish for himself. All right. Now let's rattle through the remaining questions and get y'all headed towards turkey comas. Uh, Jonas Magnuson says, MP, what risks, if any, do you see with the Indy 500 being... The first oval race with a new hybrid engine package. I don't know, Jonas, because I don't know what the specifications are going to be. Uh, is it full boost? Is it limited boost? When and how are they going to be able to harvest? Is it going to be something that factors heavily into the competition strategy, whatever side? I don't know. And I, I want to know, and I'm wanting to ask questions to folks who will tell me so I can write stories and answer here with a vague amount of authority. Assuming everything launches the way that we hope, full hybrid field at St. Pete, we will have, what, four-ish races? I might be forgetting exactly how many, but we'll have four to five races before the Indy 500 where whatever kinks there are should be largely worked out. So when we do get to the 500, we're not talking about energy recovery systems that are still wonky and, and you name it. New technology, of course, they're going to be teething pains. We have to expect that. But I would think we would have enough races 
and if it's not a major thing time for fixes and you know keeping in mind that if there's a problem you have to do an entire batch of solutions of not just the 27 or 28 cars that are on track at most races but right you need to have multiple spares as well but where there is a huge question mark is well since we don't have an oval at all before the indy 500 next season this will be the first time that we have big crazy speeds sustained speeds this will be an environment where for 500 miles times 33 cars this is going to be potentially the toughest environment they're placed in where if failure is going to happen it's probably going to be here think about this in terms of an endurance race well (laughs) realize it's three three and a half hours on a sunday and in may which isn't exactly 24 hours at lamar daytona in terms of endurance but again this is pretty heavily sustained usage at highest level highest rpm how will they function there well we're gonna have to find out there because we're not going to go to a texas like we have beforehand to get a real good look as to what areas might be problematic at these high sustained speeds so that to me is the big question mark and uh yeah answers to follow here hopefully sometime soon uh james lau you say mp question about chassis integrity in a situation when like callum eilat claims something was wrong with the chassis he had to start off with at indy would the team send it back to delar for testing you say are carbon pieces large and small recyclable or do they just get thrown away happy thanksgiving to you your wife and the cats thank you james and great question here if we're talking about a, a quote chassis problem something being sent to delara probably thinking more about a crash confirm the quality and integrity of it if a team is unable to figure it out on their own uh there are other specialist vendors in and around indianapolis that can and do the same exact thing the specific issue here of callum's original indy 500 chassis built up by hunkos hollinger racing being one that just said look that there's something wrong uh it is not performing well obviously it's not fast but he also mentioned like going down the straight the car was doing weird things and just super inconsistent and i know from conversations with engineers even mechanics a lot of times the first first belief is there something wrong with the floor the large underwing that bolts beneath the tub engine and whatnot that's not only where the the tunnels are where they make really really good downforce but it's also a place where suction is happening at all times and so talk to a number of folks and they'll tell you yeah if we've got slow car syndrome at indy of course we're going to look through everything is there something causing excessive mechanical drag that's acting like a parachute and so on but uh floors tend to be the first place where teams look at from an aero standpoint and is there a section of the floor that is delaminating a bit kind of it's a little easier to spot with the eye but is there something that's sagging or getting pulled down at speed is there something that is fluctuating on the floor so that we're not getting 
consistent downforce to the car? Is it also doing something that is creating excessive turbulence and slowing the car? This is where everyone I was speaking with about this situation with Ilot's car was saying, I bet you it's the floor. I don't recall if that was cited as the thing they believed or found was the deal, but they did change the chassis and things were better, obviously. But in something like this, most teams are equipped to inspect their own cars. Uh, If there's questions about torsional rigidity of the tub, they can do that torsion testing on their own. If there are curiosities about, is there something with the tub itself that's gone wonky? Teams do something similar to, or if not identical, to uh, ultrasound ultrasound inspection but again they can can indeed have others delar included do that finer inspection so uh there's that and yeah as for the carbon pieces all depends um recycled carbon is becoming more of a thing uh so that is something where those parts and pieces could potentially be uh used or sent to or sold to those looking to recycle carbon but yeah uh teams also aren't very good at throwing things away or giving things away uh, lots of selling of things. So yeah, that's, uh, hopefully everything answered at once. Uh, Michael Bragg, great question here. You say, well, other drivers see Hunko's hauling or racing as a place not to go because of how Callum Eilat was treated. We're about to find out, right? And we'll see how things go with Romain Groschon. We know the team has a great relationship with Augustine Canapino. No concerns about how he has been or will be treated there. Groshaw is really the one who's going to tell us what the state of union's like within that team. And he, of course, have the finest reputations, but if JHR is hiring drivers, there will always be a line of folks ready and willing to be paid to drive for them, whether they have been nice or mean two drivers uh if someone there aren't enough of them in indycar have a willingness to deposit money in a driver's bank account well damn it (laughs) there will never be a shortage that supply was inexhaustible michael so oh boy yeah and this is a situation where Hunko's Hollinger Racing really does need to excel in 2024 with Groschon. Why not Canapino? Well, he's going to do super well. That's not an issue, not a question. But how well can Roman do with that team if everybody works well together? Uh, this is going to be a pivotal year for Hunko's Hollinger Racing, and we'll see whether they develop into a real serious midfield or slightly better challenger they have the potential or if things go sideways if they get kind of baked into the all right well you're there and you're a team and we we like you uh, and you pay people but we have no real reason to fear you or think that you are going to be more than a midfield team um this is going to be a fascinating year to see where they end up getting placed in a hierarchical standpoint. Uh, 
Uh, Ken Anderson, say MP, uh, thanks for keeping us IndyCar fans well-informed, all while dealing with Chevelle's issues. Well, thank you, Ken. That's, that's sweet of you. My question is regarding the recent election in Argentina in an IndyCar race possibly being held there. You say, I've heard the track is chosen. Moving forward, you say, unfortunately, a Google search on the new president makes me very leery. What is your take? I find it a little hard, Ken, to look at a person just elected who has no real body of work to draw from to make any kind of educated opinion. Uh, I know that here in the U.S., we have a president who is extremely unpopular for, I don't know what the percentage is, I'll just say half the country. That half of the country believes we're in end times, circling the drain. Everything that's good is gone or dying. Go back to the previous president. Half the country believes circling the drain. Everything's terrible. End times are here. Go back to the previous president. It's kind of our become our thing, where if not your candidate won, end times are here, worst of all time we are still able to walk freely in the streets and eat turkey and have cats that snore and so on and so forth. If a president has just been elected in Argentina who could be great, terrible, or otherwise, I'd think they'd need to have more time to be president before a credible opinion is formed and would also say that having an awesome president of a country or a terrible president of the country probably wouldn't affect the ability for a motor race to be held and for it to be good. Uh, many motor races are held throughout the world in places with leaders of varying quality and the racing side of it somewhat independent of any of that just because it is, and because all kinds of other sports happen in those countries that have nothing to do with whatever political party or president has been elected. So maybe I'm seeing things in a different way here, Ken, but whether Argentina has a new president coming that is someone to love or someone to fear, I don't know how that would have any influence on the quality of a motor race and the ability for folks to go from the U.S. or go from Venezuela or England or wherever to Argentina to enjoy that race. Andrew Miller, you say, alternate history time. What if someone catches that manufacturing error that led to Simon's mid-Ohio crash, Simon Pagino, part of that practice session? You say, is Simon slated for full-time ride in 2024? Is Linus Lindqvist? Sitting in the open wheel sidelines. Where uh, did Linus impress as a late season replacement for Jack Harvey uh, and is now the Yuri Vips role as the guy on the bench at Ray Hall? Oh, look at you. Alternate universes here. I love this, Andrew. <sighs> the tough part with Simon, the tough part with this, I don't recall exactly where he was in the standings, the point of his crash. But Simon was in the midst of his worst season ever, like bad. 
if things had turned around, obvious statement alert, I think Simon would have been on the market, would have been of value to some teams for sure. Would also say that if the season had continued in the direction it was going, which was unfortunately and and more often than not highly ineffective not sure simon finds that opportunity to stay in the series in a full-time capacity and so that's where i love the idea of the crash never happening i love the idea of him not having to go through all of this and have his full-time future in IndyCar, for sure, thrown into question. Um, But we can't overlook the fact that in a contract year, he was struggling. Can't exactly tell you why. I don't know if there was a specific thing that could be singled out. I know that he and race engineer Garrett Mothershead were making more out of their collaboration, out of their relationship. Better than year one, for sure. But something just wasn't really clicking. And I've just looked it up. Going into mid-Ohio, noting that there are 27 full-time entries last season. Simon entered mid-Ohio 24th in the standings. So can't put all of that on him right problems with the car some you know some team-based issues as well but this was going terribly for simon before he got to mid ohio and this is where we have to accept the fact that terms of a market value there wasn't a ton there for him to trade upon for where he might go in the future. Andretti wasn't going to be interested. McLaren, same thing. Ganassi, same thing. Uh, Penske, same thing. Rahal, maybe, maybe. But having stepped from Penske down to Shank, and things not gone well at Shank, is he looking at a carpenter? Possibly. Is it a coin? Again, things where without a turnaround that I don't exactly know where that would have gone, things were looking up. They felt like they found something at Road America heading into mid-Ohio that was really going to help them, Andrew. But given the sample of work to make those hiring decisions on, I don't exactly know where Simon heads, where we would say, okay, that's great and that's awesome. Um, That's the part that's so frustrating. Referring back to some of the setup things they found at Road America, there was so much energy that okay we're getting to the mid-season here but feels like we're going to be able to turn it around and you know rallying from 24th 
to 18th in the championship or something like that wouldn't have stood out as amazing but internally they felt like better days are ahead and the fact that he and they were not able to find out um that's just cruel and then the last thing here is Linus Lundqvist jumping in and impressing pretty quickly Tom Blomqvist I think as well had some pretty decent showings Connor Daly right Linus in particular though really making a bit of a statement in that car those things did not help so i know the question is a what if it never happened i haven't even heard simon's name mentioned among any of the teams that i speak with and we don't know where he's at status wise in terms of returning to action even if we did i just haven't heard his name mentioned it makes me so so sad um lyle james you say when it comes to oval and speedway spec cars Often be curious about some of the mechanical elements that don't tend to get much coverage. When it comes to things like low drag transmissions and the other unseen components to the speedway cars, are any open for development by teams? Are they alternate versions of parts commonly available to all the teams from Delara? Uh, you nailed one with transmissions, and so it's using bearings and massaging bearings and contact parts and pieces not the actual gears themselves, but everything else, the spinny bits uh, that control the spinny bits where lower friction, reducing friction, that is a big, big thing. We're talking about speedway form. So the other one that jumps out uh, as in the same vein would be the uprights, the mechanical bits that hold everything together out at the wheels uh the bearings there that the hubs go through the wheels bolt on to these suspension arms connect to brakes connect to brakes are assembled on that's an area for sure where the amount of lubrication for the uprights uh for the bearings there and reducing friction in that area is huge as well um I won't mention the team or driver. <laughs> it was Indy 500 only program uh, for a driver. This was a couple years ago. I remember being with them in the garage, gasoline alley. Don't honestly remember whether it was end of day or morning, but either the crew hadn't come in yet, or maybe they were off having lunch, breakfast, whatever it might be, but just in there with the driver by ourselves and they were saying yeah i i i can tell my team uh, that i've brought significant money to is not looking at me as someone they really believe can do well in the race and i'm like why is that and the cars were up on stands right so wheels were on them cars were up high wheels could freely spin tires could freely spin that driver's car was right next to one of the full-time driver's cars. Said, look at this. Walked over, put their hand on top of the wheel, and pushed it and spun it. And it spun freely, as it should. 
friction greatly reduced by effort invested by the team to reduce the rolling resistance with that wheel bearing and so went spun the tire spun the wheel and it spun again i don't know how many rotations but it was a lot went over just turned to the left put their hand on front wheel on their car spun it and it did like one and a half rotations compared to i don't know what it was seven eight nine ten on the other one it was just clear like oh okay yeah you don't have what every hardcore contending indy 500 team has done and that is to reduce friction in their wheel bearings here and so the driver was just their eyes kind of lit up like yep see here spins freely mine barely does a full rotation with the drag holding back that bearing from flowing freely and you go well but don't these cars have like crazy horsepower yes they do but they're having to do two things at all times to make that speed fight through that invisible liquid known as air the drag that is holding it back having to use that horsepower to push it through the air that is resisting it and then use that horsepower to push through whatever amount of mechanical drag and something as simple as the wheel bearings are 100 percent an area where if a push on one will spin 10 times and a push on the other will spin one time you are going to have a slower car because it is sapping horsepower therefore sapping speed having to push through that rolling resistance within the wheel bearing so say that's probably the uh the main one that jumps out here lyle and thank you for sending this in let's uh let's fire through the remaining questions take another little sip of coffee uh where do we go where do we go dan rice marshall say you're chosen to set the exhibit ims museum when it reopens in 2025 what is your ideal telling of the history of ims and open wheel racing in north america look like what do you include besides the cars engineering media other series that raced ims racing and pop culture man that's a amazing question here uh so there are two things about indycar history that always stand out to me I don't know if they stand out to others, but there are specific eras where beauty is just undeniable and engineering technical innovation is undeniable. You don't always get beautiful cars that are innovative and have broken barriers from a mechanical or arrow or whatever standpoint, but those are the two areas I'd work from because i think the museum does a really good job at picking things that are compelling to look at i mean truly they do snow i would say hey let's celebrate what makes us unique and that is among many things boy we sure have had some beautiful cars over the years but let's focus on the most visually pleasing indie cars ever and present them and talk about what and why makes those cars so beautiful would also look to have folks who love indycar fans 
share their stories. This, to me, would be a great consensus kind of thing to do. What's the most beautiful IndyCar of all time to you and why? Name the things. Is it the curves? Is it the colors? What is it? Would also say, you know, there are some groundbreaking things technologically that has happened here at the 500, and let's dedicate exhibition to that as well. It's possible to do both of these at the same time. Big believer in not just showing the things that make history, but also explaining them. It's an area that they do a good job with as well. Jason Vansickle, who's there now, just excellent, excellent in this regard. These are the things I'd do, though, because pretty cars are always delightful to look at, but the idea of actually going in and trying to assemble beauty, uh, it's a celebration of us. Then getting into the technical side. I think if you blend these two things, I think you'd have something pretty powerful. Um, I'd probably go on all day long, Dan, about what else to do there. But uh, these are the two things that come first. Ed Joris, you say, any chance IndyCar will borrow an idea from F1 and make teams close for a week or 10 days during the Olympic break? Make is an interesting question. Um, It's not like this is the first time. IndyCar has functioned while there were Olympics going on, but I will add this question to the list of those that I need to pose to the series, and I am struggling to find my little post-it notepad, but I don't know. I like the idea of a break, but I'll have to see if that is something IndyCar would consider. Ed, uh, let's go to Justin Lee. This is Marshall question about vintage event tires after your trip to sonoma i'm guessing avon makes the bulk of them for f1 do you have any insight into the performance of those tires relative to the tires they would have raced on um eh, it's a little bit of a hard question to answer knowing that we have vintage f1 cars from the 50s 60s 70s 80s uh very different tires across all eras so for what and Avon supplies, um, that is something where, you know, potentially we have tires that are kind of out of phase, out of match with what the cars would have run in period. But generally, they're known to be really good. Avon, I believe, handles just about every type of, of vintage type tire I can think of in the modern era, right? You're not going to find old knobbly 1920s type tires from them but i mean i've only heard good things and obviously they produce pretty decent quality grip as well but at the same time uh are we talking about the same quality as a bespoke pirelli or whatever it is might have been used beforehand probably not that's the the only takeaway here that really stands out justin and that is you're going from tires that were specifically made for a 1985 F1 car at its specific weight, at its downforce, at its power level, how it braked, how it accelerated, all those things. You're going from back in the day, tire that was made for that formula to something that is more generic. And so 
this is the only area where you go, okay, I wouldn't expect this car, modern era car at least, to run the same lap times because it doesn't have a tire that's custom made for it. At the same time, you could indeed have some eras where you go, well, those tires weren't great or they were treaded or something along those lines. And hey, now you have a way more modern tire and the car is indeed capable of going faster. So uh, you also say if it's a former Indy car, does Firestone get involved in what type of tire they would provide in vintage? Um, no. Uh, we did see just because the sizes have, have really stayed the same that when Colton and Brian Herta drove Brian's 98 Renard Cosworth cart car, that it was fitted with new Firestones, and that's because it fit. Uh, but yeah, start to go back a little bit older, different wheel sizes, and Firestone wouldn't have anything that fit. So uh, you say, best to you and the family, and have an enjoyable Thanksgiving. And I will, Justin, for sure. Uh, Ed Joris, you say now that Honda and Honda racing corporation seem to be out of the USF three formula regional America's mix. What are the odds of them picking up sponsorship of USF championships or Indy NXT? I know they've been courted to do that forever and haven't, uh, if it's a sales thing and there's profit to be made, I am positive that they would entertain doing that. If it's a sponsorship thing. I am pretty positive that they would not. So in the F3 Formula Regional Americas scenario, they were indeed selling engines, supporting engines. That's what it was. Realized they offered scholarship, which is pretty cool, but money-making venture. Uh, them doing a sponsorship-type thing to get those motors aligned with the junior open-wheel categories directly involved with IndyCar, I would not see them finding financial value in doing that at all. Why? Well, they're spending tons to be in the top series. So doing something below that, which is going to get a fraction of a percent of recognition or coverage, would say from their mindset would probably make no sense. Uh, Jamie Dolinger. So you just got done listening to the Dinner with Racers episodes about Smoky Eunuch. Smokey being the great team owner, engineer, raconteur. This got me thinking, there are many pioneers and innovators in IndyCar history that got to hear about, but also others many of us might not know about. So would you mind sharing some that are either inspired, uh, that either inspired you in your time or helped you along the way, or even ones from the past that you would have wanted to meet and work with along with their innovations? Well, your timing is great, Jamie spent a lot of time in recent weeks on the phone with some amazing designers, engineers, and you name it for some magazine features I've been commissioned to do. Uh, one of them is John Ward designer of the all American racers. We call the Pepsi challenger from 1981. Uh, thank you. have gotten to know him, but he is someone whose design talents know if they've ever gotten the full measure of respect they're due i know this is an indycar show uh, john also designed the greatest imsa gtp car ever 
the 1991 through 93 All-American Racers Eagle Mark III. First ever prototype he designed, and it also happened to be the greatest ever. Uh, won 16 of its last 17 races. I think won 20 out of its 27 races it did in IMSA. Set lap records everywhere it went. At least one of them still stands to date. Like, just crazy. He's someone for sure that we need to just bow down to because if you think about the 81 Eagle and how radical it was compared to anything that came before it, truly, aerodynamically, there's nothing like it. Uh, And then follows that up (laughs) uh, 10 years later and designs the greatest IMSA prototype, GTP, ever. Um, that That's crazy, right? And that 81 Pepsi Challenger, he actually did the car before that in 1980. That's where a lot of these new concepts came up, uh, aerodynamic concepts came up. That car wasn't a great success, but revised, improved, came back did a a better iteration of it in 81. Um, It's the same car that Mike Mosley drove from last to first to win at Milwaukee. I think he qualified second at the Indy 500 with it in 81. Um, John Ward, for sure. Also race engineer, heavily involved most recently, just retired very, very recently. But of the multiple championships Brian Herta Autosport has won in IMSA's TCR class with their Hyundais, John was centrally involved with a lot of that. Uh, so John Ward, for sure, just someone I look at and go, oh boy, you're uh, you're crazy good. There are many others. This is, probably, this is a great question to send in every now and then because I'll certainly think of lots of folks to mention. Another one I'll share. He was a huge mentor for me, along with my guy Michael Cannon, and that is Canada's Burke Harrison, two, three-time champ, uh, and Indy Lights as an engineer. Uh, what is he doing recently? Where has he been lending his talents? That would be Augie Papp's team. Helping to develop a young kid by the name of Miles Rowe. And so, right, I look at Burke, and he's done so many things that were phenomenal. Spent the majority of his time, and Burke's got to be in his 60s, majority of his time in junior open wheel racing never had an interest jamie in going and working for big indycar teams and such always got tons of offers and was so so worthy of doing it never though really struck his interest liked working with younger drivers uh, and so that's where he really put his energies and again championship after championship did some imsa stuff uh done all kinds of things but burke harrison about the nicest guy you'll meet hilarious take the piss out of you at all times um but someone who has a real knack for working with young drivers and getting things from them to make the car better teaching them hey you told me this but that doesn't that's not going to really help me do much let me show you how to go over here and focus how to look at things from this perspective and that'll, that'll give me better feedback on how to make the car better for you just really excellent guy and 
as humble as they come, uh, never sought the spotlight, but is one of those legends within the paddock where you look at them and go, thank goodness, man. There are so many young drivers who've gone on to greatness, who have orbited you, interacted with you, and instead of going up with them, you said, no, I'm going to kind of stay here in the young talent factory and keep developing these kids. So, yeah, Burke Harrison's it's the other one that comes to mind. So thank you, brother. And, yeah, like I said, keep uh, keep sending that in here on occasion. And our guy Jerry Siddeth also mentions that this might be uh, a good segment to do uh, kind of pioneers of IndyCar on a semi-regular basis. Our guy Tim Falkowitz. Thank you, Tim, for all the time you helped put together the questions and got me rolling there back in the day. Say, who do you think is the best driver-engineer combo of all time? He says, for hashtag me personally, it's Morris Nunn and Alex Zanardi. Yeah, there was something pretty special there, right? Those two made all the sense in the world to each other, and their results. (laughs) Their results certainly spoke to that. Um, Wow, it's a great one. I think Tony Sicali, I don't know if great, greatest of all time is where I'd place because I, I don't have one uh, in IndyCar, to be honest. But I think Tony Sicali stands out. Did some phenomenal stuff, with certainly with Mario Andretti uh, and others. I need to give this more thought because you're right. Uh, Mo Nunn and, and you add whomever it is, it's really crazy powerful. You know, this is something... Uh, along with Jamie's question before that, where I think this does need to become a not just regular feature, but maybe something I do in print as well and ask some of the uh, legends of the sport about who. Who would you say greatest engineer and driver combo of all time? I love that. And also some of the hidden and or under appreciated under mentioned engineers and, and technical types who really deserve love great stuff coming in y'all are inspiring me to make more content all right we are rounding home here i think got one more question then a couple of, of kind submissions and then we will bid farewell justin poley justin is this your first question you've sent in if so thank you my friend, and if not, I apologize for being an idiot and not realizing it wasn't. So are there any concerns for teams to have potentially two exhibition races next year? That being good old Thermal Club Million Dollar Challenge. And also, potentially, <clears throat> that being Argentina. You say, do teams expect to see a return from these events? Uh, yes, on Argentina, but not crazy financial return and i i hope some of the teams get something out of thermal we know that there's some good money to do super well in that million dollar challenge but yeah maybe not so much the first right everyone's vying for taking home the big prize there but it's always a a situation where it's mostly have nots and just a couple halves if the argentina thing happens there is meant to be a profit-ish type thing that happens for teams, but this is the the tricky part, Justin. 
We see it a little bit with Canada each year. We definitely saw it back the last international, like real international trips we made, that being to Brazil. And that was, unless you're dealing with a sponsor that is of the international variety, uh, if you have a North American or and or very regional type sponsor, right, uh, you're not going to get any value going abroad or almost zero value so you know what high v for example midwest grocery store chain they started doing national advertising knowing that they opened up a kind of an online shopping solution hey you come here you can buy stuff we'll ship it to you great okay <clears throat> made sense going down to argentina I don't know if Hy-Vee sees a ton of value in that trip. We look at a DHL, for example, international shipping company. Well, if they're attached to a car, you could see that being a value and would expect those DHL colors to be on a car. But the thing that we saw quite a bit using Brazil yet again was Hey, if we've got a full season sponsorship deal, okay, cool. You're paying for the full season. You get all the races. Got it. For those who are in the, hey, we got one or two or three primary sponsor scenarios, those teams would often struggle to find a sponsor for Brazil and would end up selling that sponsorship for a small amount because there's nothing there of any great value. So this is where we get into a little bit of a tricky thing with going to Argentina or wherever else. So do travel costs get covered? Yes. Is there a financial boost in the leader circle contract? To, I don't know what the number is. Sure. Do teams still need to cover the costs of competing on their own? They do. And so that's where a paying driver hopefully can do that. Or a team can find a sponsor or maybe have a sponsor that says, okay, I get it. We're not playing in front of folks who can go to the market and buy our thing. Or, you know, someone's probably not going to use our online car buying service in Argentina, right? For cars that we sell here in the U.S. But we'll be on TV and hopefully we'll get a decent rating depending on the platform we're on. And that's where we can get value. The part, though, again, that tends to be the sticky one is, okay, so we're going to get some extra money for the leader circle, and you'll cover our travel costs. Great. Still costs money to compete. And can we find a sponsor to cover that? And if it's not great... This is where the teams start to get a little bit concerned and, and speak loudly about such things not making sense. You also have a, a period here where teams, by and large, do not want to express their concerns and frustrations publicly. Some will, but they also know that under IndyCar's somewhat new ownership with Penske Entertainment, uh, Penske Entertainment does not tolerate such things without a lot of clapping back. So, yeah, tell teams how going abroad is something that will benefit them financially. Well, saying you're going to 
hook them up with flights and hotels and put a little bit extra money in their leader circle contract. It's good. But given the opportunity to not go and not have the little bit extra in the leader circle and whatnot, I think you'd hear most teams say we'd just rather to stay home. Uh, we're going to close here. Brian Friedrich says loves the Lynn St. James art used to put out the questions here. Uh, thanks, Brian. Yeah, that's from what last year, I think two years ago. Uh, just decided to pull that out. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, you say happy Thanksgiving MP. And then Chris Ward, you do the same. You say no questions here. Just have a happy and healthy Thanksgiving from my family to yours. And God bless brother Ward. Thank you. Thanks to everybody. And seriously, if you can, please visit prukids.org. Uh, whatever you can donate a dollar, 10 something. Um, this is just a, a beautiful initiative spearheaded by the Day and Cassie Johnston, where helping kids who could use it. I don't know. Um, I can't think of a better thing that you might do. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Discount Tire. And I will speak to you very soon.